Mach 3, give me cruise show on 2, 3, and 4. The views expressed in this podcast are of the individual participants and do not represent any organization or entity. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as legal advice nor the formation of an attorney-client relationship. Today I'm joined by Denise Rucker-Krepp, and I am really, maybe excited isn't the right word for this because the topic is really serious, but uh, she recently wrote an op-ed on CNN about uh, some things going on in the past in the military and how that's persisted into now. And I'm more interested in the cultural undertones of the topic, so I'm excited to explore it so that way I have a better understanding. But it's a really serious topic, and so I'm not excited for the topic. But uh, Denise, I really can't thank you enough uh, for coming on the podcast, uh, and thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me today, and excited to be here. Uh, just need to share that the views that I'm expressing today are those of my, they're my own. And um, I'm just happy to talk about the essay and any questions you might have about it. What's your, I guess, let's start with what's your background? So I was a lawyer by training. I started out my career as a uh, Coast Guard officer, came in in, uh, in 98, pre 9-11, yeah, so very different Coast Guard than we have today. It, I was recruited out of the University of Miami, go Hurricanes. And the Coast Guard that I joined was one that was working on fisheries and was working on immigrants and drugs and, and um, life-saving. Uh, and then a little war started called 9-11. And I was actually in Boston that day. I was supposed to fly. That was a very, uh, very difficult day for me because I was engaged to a Navy swell. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we didn't see each other for a while because, well, he was deployed and I went back to Coast Guard headquarters. And the Coast Guard, again, that I had joined uh, that was doing a, a lot of fisheries and, and things like that was now all of a sudden an agency that was trying to stop people from smuggling in bombs into the United States via boats. Yeah. So I got I got to be part of uh, you know be part of an agency change, and then Congress decided to create this little agency called uh, TSA, and I had the opportunity of coming in on the ground floor and helping create it. So I joined TSA in two thousand and two, served there for a couple of years, ended up on the House of Representatives Homeland Security Committee right as they were starting that up. And when President Barack Obama was elected, I was asked to become the first, or become the, the chief counsel of the U.S. Maritime Administration. And I served there. Uh, let's see. And then became a private sector lobbyist and then rejoined the federal government a couple of years ago. So it, it kind of hopscotched around. Oh, and let, let's not forget that I was an elected official for eight years. Were you? Yeah. What were you elected official for? In Washington, D.C., yeah. What was the position? 
<laughs> I laugh because the, the position typically is one that deals with transportation and zoning. It's called an advisory neighborhood commissioner. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, most of the people stayed in that little box. But when my neighbor was raped eight years ago this past weekend, I stepped out of the box and asked what I thought was a very simple question, which was how many rapes are prosecuted here in Washington, D.C.? Department of Justice said it didn't know. And me being a former federal agency chief counsel said, well, I don't buy that answer. So I asked them again nicely and they said, I don't know. So I employed them. They declined. I appealed. They said no. And then I sued them. So there is a, a legal case called Krep versus the United States, wherein I did get the information and I got it because of help from Senator Grassley. Uh, he went to the Department of Justice and said, are you really sure you think it's a good idea to make a D.C. resident pay you money and sue you just to find out how many rapes you're prosecuting? That's when the Department of Justice, by the way, that was under Barack Obama, went to him and said, oh, well, we're really a transparent agency. and We would be happy to give this to you. So they gave the information that I was seeking to Senator Grassley, me being a Democrat, by the way, him being a Republican, and then turned around, wouldn't give it to me. So we had to settle, but I did get the information finally. So but long way of saying rape has always been a very important issue to me, and I've been willing to sue the United States government to obtain data about prosecutions of rape. You know, not to uh, glum on to your uh, story. I'm not going to be a story. Yeah. Topper. Actually, I can't be a story topper because yours, <laughs> by definition, tops mine. There was almost a McGee versus United States because I had been in a FOIA administrative black hole. I was seeking suicide uh, data by job code in the Air Force. And they wow. said, uh, I, I initially forwarded it to the Air Force and they came back and go, oh, we, we don't we don't have that. Right. So I reached out to the PA. I said, hey, I'm going to write a story that you don't track suicides by job code and either you're a liar or you're incompetent. Which way do you want me to go on this story? And they were like, uh-oh. Uh- <laughs> Let's now share the information. Yep. Uh, and then as I was gearing up to sue, I, I, I worked with Senator Angus King and actually got him to commission a study for the suicide numbers by job code from global war on terror till today for all wow. service, all components. Uh, so now, I mean, I could technically still sue because my administrative appeal is still pending, but mm-hmm. it's essentially moot because the data is coming and it's just spite. I don't. You shouldn't sue for spite. That's not that's not a good look. No, it's it's not. And I, I sued just because I wanted to know, again, rape data. But I did one more thing. So it, it, it was an itty-bitty little title. I had no staff, zero staff. I didn't get paid. I just kept sending letters to people. So one of the other letters I sent was to the VA. And just ask a simple question. How many MST claims, military sexual trauma claims, do you get per year? And so they gave me the data going back to World War II. Holy cow. Yeah, they divided it by conflict and they divided it by service. And if I remember correctly, the claims they got in between 2010 and 2020 was about 136,000. 136,000 claims. Yeah. That's a very smart way to go about finding out that information because you're probably going to get much more honest reporting for MST mm-hmm. through the VA because people are just trying to seek treatment and compensation yes. instead of the risk of retaliation from the command and then all the right. the, the career impacts and also mm-hmm. like the social impacts because you're within those. But also we're getting ahead of ourselves. We haven't even talked about what your op-ed was about. But No, no. Right. Yeah. So 
Um, I guess let's maybe let we'll start almost chronologically. What was the tail hook scandal? It was 32 years ago. And uh, it was aviators in Las Vegas. Yeah. And they, the, the, the kindest way for me to say is they behaved badly. By badly, I mean they were sexually assaulting female aviators and over 100 individuals. By the way, it was men and women, predominantly uh, women, were sexually assaulted at this conference. And, uh, you know, when I first heard about it, I heard about this amazing lady named Paula Coughlin. And, and Paula was a naval aviator. Her parent, her, her father had been in the Navy and she followed him in. And, and, and she did what she thought was right at the time, which was to blow the whistle on it and say, this is unacceptable. I mean, you should be, women in, in the military should be treated equally. And sadly, well, this country and, and the military at that time weren't ready to uh, properly respond. Nobody was prosecuted. There was an investigation, there was congressional investigations, there was Department of Defense investigations, but nobody was prosecuted. And, you know, and I was living in Fayetteville, North Carolina at the time. I was uh, just about ready to go into college when this happened. And, and I can remember talking to a friend of mine who was a young Army officer. And I said, you know, this is really bad. And he goes, well, it's, yeah, it's bad, but it's really bad for the men because we're the ones who are paying for it. And I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? You're the ones paying for it. And he goes, well, now everybody thinks that that's all we do. I said, well, kind of 100, 100 people were hurt, and those are 100 people that you know about. Um, and he goes, yeah, well, you know, it's not fair that, you know, not right that she did what she did. And thinking again, wait a second here. <laughs> Why shouldn't she have talked? Um, and, and so I was, I was really appalled by his, the take of it. Now, I, what I should have told you, you know, I, that I was a Coast Guard officer, but see, I come from military stock. My parents were both Army officers. So my dad was a West Pointer and my mother was uh, one of the last generations of the Women's Army Corps. And my family goes back, which is, you know, when I asked you to say Rucker, let's Rucker as in Fort Rucker or oh. used to be Fort Rucker, Alabama. Yeah. That's yeah. why you mentioned that. Oh, yes. So I have a long line of family who have served in the military. And as a kid, my father was trying to get me to go to West Point. So I, if I had gone, I would have been class of 95. I didn't. I went to the Coast Guard Academy. But he kept saying to me, you should go to West Point. You should go to West Point. I'll, I'll, I'll buy you a car if you go to West Point. I was like, yeah, no, pass. So I didn't go to West Point, decided to go in to the Coast Guard. And the Coast Guard I was joining, so this was post-tailhook. Mm -hmm. So Paul is happening. You know, the tailhook happens in the early 90s. I joined the Coast Guard in the late 90s. And Tailhook was Navy? Tailhook was Navy and Air Force okay. and others. So when I again when I first heard about it, I always thought it was Navy. Recently I learned however it was Navy and Air Force and others. It wasn't just a Navy problem. Okay. Because this was aviators coming in. Understood. All services. Yes. Tailhook early 90s. It's mm -hmm. a conference in Las Las Vegas with aviators, yep. military aviators, and there's something of a hundred sexual assaults. What period of time are we talking about? Like a three day conference or a week or two? No, I think it was like a, it was a couple of days conference, and it was in the fall. And um, you know, these were attendees that were kind of being forced down a gauntlet in in a hotel room, and um, there was just it was harassment, and sexual assault. And so if you're my generation and I'm 50, 
that was a, it was a, it was a milestone event to see a woman speaking up for herself and saying, this is unacceptable. And then just to see the backlash against her. I mean, again, all these men were coming out and saying, what are you doing? Why are you talking? And then there was you know, promises made. And, and I think that was really was, was important here is promises were made so that women could have a safe environment. Right about this time, we're also having women going into combatants. So we're, gonna ha- we're now going to be putting them on combatant ships. The entire why are you talking narrative, mm-hmm. I think it speaks to your struggles with FOIA, my struggles with FOIA. There is a culture in the military that somehow, I think, attaches national security to how the military behaves and operates even internally in secret that that anything that exposes corruption or abuse or anything like that has a, a dangerous effect on mission readiness or retention or recruitment or something um possibly but i guess i'm a little more familiar with foia in another avenue which was embarrassment oh i think that's very much yes yes yeah, so I, I uh because i managed foia so as Merad Chief Counsel, I was responsible for the agency's FOIA program. And, and so I was responsible for making sure that the FOIAs were properly answered. And so once a quarter, I had to go upstairs to the then uh, Deputy General Counsel of the Department of Transportation, because Merad fell within uh, DOT, and I would have to answer why I wasn't processing FOIAs in a more timely manner. So I was actually getting yelled at by OST for not processing FOIAs timely. Well, good news is whoever your replacement is, I don't think they yell at people for untimely FOIAs anymore. I think that's a bygone era. Yeah, I know. That was about 12 years ago. So (laughs) I guess it kind of changed. Yeah. So also you said after the tail hook, there was some some efforts to, because from the whistleblowing and policy changes to make it Mm -hmm. a safe, the, D- the Department of Defense safe for females? So it would have been Department of Defense and then Department of Transportation because Coast Guard fell within right. Department of Transportation prior to 9-11. And so if I understand correctly, no mm-hmm. one was prosecuted for any of these? Not for, not for tailhook, no. So I guess maybe this is a dumb question and a simple mm-hmm. question. How can you assure safety if there isn't accountability for it, uh, willful abuse and infliction of harm mm-hmm. on people that you exercise authority over? That's a really good question. I try to ask good questions on this podcast. It's one of my shticks. Yep. Yes, and I agree with that. So if no punishment came of it, mm-hmm. and we're, we're back, or mm-hmm. maybe not even back. Back's probably not fair. We've probably never left. I don't think we've left because yeah. you want to talk about my experience at Merad and part of how this. So you have tailhook happening in the early 90s. Then I have a little ex- interesting experience at Merad. And then I see the CNN articles about Hope Hicks. And then the CNN articles about um, Coast Guard Academy. And I realized that, uh, no, we really haven't left tailhook. That the promises that were made were never implemented. And that there was a continuum of dangerous activity that hurt men and women for three plus decades. 
it's not good. I I know some of these things can be nuanced and complex. And I Mm -hmm. think in a lot of times, there's a straw man or a bad faith argument where they point to, you know, false accusations or things. But even if you just set that aside, Mm -hmm. it's undeniable that sexual assaults are happening even with yeah. the occasional or whatever amount of mm-hmm. of of uh maybe and it may not even be false reporting maybe just um, unsubstantiated which doesn't mean it wasn't true it's just we 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 didn't have enough type of deal but the sexual assaults are still happening and you and you see things like Vanessa Gee and what was going on mm-hmm. down in former Fort Hood that was atrocious when you hear about mm-hmm. what was happening at the Coast Guard Academy like mm-hmm. that was atrocious when you hear about what's happening on the um uh, merchant marine ships Mm-hmm. That is like, I would feel this way whether or not I had daughters, but I can't imagine sending the sons and daughters of America into these organizations where you're rolling the dice on them just being psychologically destroyed. How can we have a healthy organization where this culture exists? You don't. And very bluntly, I would not send my child to the Merchant Marine Academy and I wouldn't send my child to the Coast Guard Academy because I became aware of these crimes, gosh, it's been 14 years now. So I I joined the Maritime Administration in the fall of 2009 and was immediately put on uh, notice on the school, the uh, sexual assaults that were happening. So uh, first became aware of the crimes when we were getting the annual report. So in the Duncan Hunter National Defense Authorization Act of, I think it was 2009, either 2008 or 2009, I'm trying to remember which date, required that an annual report be done of sexual harassment and sexual assault at the Merchant Marine Academy. And as chief counsel, I was given the raw data. And the raw data was pretty stark. And and it was uh, men and women were being sexually assaulted at the school and they were being sexually assaulted during the sea year. So when you go to the Coast Guard Academy and Air Force Academy and the uh, Naval Academy and West Point, you spend four years in the military and you spend four years at those schools. When you go to the Merchant Marine Academy, which is the fifth one, you spend a couple years at the school, but you also spend a sizable year, what's called a sea year, out at sea, because you are going to be required to get a Merchant Mariner license. In order to do that, you have to go to sea. So the kids were being sexually assaulted during their sea year. And so we were having sexual assaults and I was seeing the raw data. And then we were asking questions as part of the raw data of, do you trust the leadership to handle these crimes? The kids were coming in, male and female, trusting leaders as freshmen. By the time they were seniors, they were not only sexually assaulted, but they weren't trusting the leaders to report the crimes and to handle it. So a couple things happened. One, I was being told of sexual assaults in Washington, D.C. So I mean, I'm in Washington, D.C. I'm getting phone calls from the academy. A girl has been found, X, Y, Z. We're trying to get her to talk. She's refusing to talk, and she's telling us she's refusing to talk because she fears being retaliated against. Okay. Then I have a whistleblower coming forward in the summer of 2011. So that's now, what is that, 12 years ago, who made some interesting allegations in writing. I asked to talk to the whistleblower. The whistleblower... It was bad. I spent about an hour on the phone with the whistleblower, everything from financial stuff to sexual assault at sea, sexual assault at the school. It it was bad. 
So I asked my lawyers to draft a letter under my signature to go to the IG and ask for an IG investigation. I sent the letter in, and the next day I had the then Secretary of Transportation screaming and yelling at me and telling me that I was incompetent and that I needed a war of supervision. Now, why am I telling you this in 2023? Because I, as the agency chief counsel, knew. And if I knew as Mara chief counsel, then the Army chief counsel, the Air Force chief counsel, the Navy chief counsel, the Marine Corps chief counsel, they also had knowledge. So what happened to Vanessa again when you mentioned it? It's not like people didn't know what was going on. People knew what was going on. They just didn't act. When you spoke up, Mm -hmm. it amplified everyone else's silence. Oh, yes. I see what I see what's going on. You drew attention to their, the fact they weren't bringing it up. Mm -hmm. And that's instead of recognizing that's a problem with everybody else. Right. It's a problem with you. Yes, I was the problem. I, I I was going to tarnish the secretary's crown jewel. And I kept saying, their crimes are being committed. I don't think I'm the one tarnishing. Yeah. So yeah, that that's not how that works. The the behavior tarnishes the reputation. And by mm-hmm. the way, the way you you fix the reputation mm-hmm. is accountability. Yeah. It no longer perpetuating. Right. Um, right. If your job is to mm-hmm. investigate and to ensure compliance in that organization with the laws, rules, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And and you had significant and substantial evidence that mm-hmm. that was not happening. And mm-hmm. seemingly everyone knew. Right. And it wasn't a one-time event. It was ongoing. Yes. Inaction mm-hmm. would not do anything. And action would be the only thing it would. So, mm-hmm. like, I guess I'm I'm stuck in the logic trap of if I'm worried about my reputation, if mm-hmm. this continues, there's going to be further harm to my reputation when it's exposed. Right. So addressing it and attacking it vigorously is the antidote to the problem, mm-hmm. which is what you wanted to do. You asked for an IG investigation, like, let's go in here and let's figure this out. Let's clean it up. Yep. I don't. So why You're, why 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 don't we? I, I'm 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 not even feigning. I'm at a loss for words. I'm actually at a loss for words. Why don't we have the courage to do the right thing in organizations that typically integrity is a cornerstone of the organizational values? That you're again. You were asking a, a really good question. I mean, and and you're looking through this through post me too. I mean, remember this is before me too. This is before everything was blowing up in 2017. This is, I, I, I kind of looking at back at this, I, I think everybody thought, you know, when people were told of this, I, I'm willing to bet people were like, surely I must be the only one. Therefore, yeah. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to do it quietly. I'm going to handle it. But once Me Too came out, everybody realized like, oh my God, this isn't just a one-off. This is happening everywhere, and so it's it's a military thing. It's it's a private sector thing. It, it it was happening everywhere, and one of the reasons I started talking about this was because I wanted to give other people a voice and the courage to talk. 
uh, you know, it, 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 <laughs> gosh. So I, I started talking about this, gosh, uh, fall of 2013. So that's when there was a uh, lawsuit at the Naval Academy. And a, I think it was a football player or somebody else had been accused of raping a student at the Naval Academy. And, and when I remember seeing the articles in the Washington Post about the defense attorneys putting her on the stand and asking her whether or not she felt like a whore. And my head was exploding reading this. So I wrote an essay for a paper and it was entitled Female Military Personnel Aren't Whores. But you know, you brought up the question of integrity. Well, if our if our core values include integrity, how can we say we have integrity if we're putting our youngsters up on stands and asking them if they're whores? <laughs> that that doesn't say you know we have integrity, nor does it say I want to come in. And so, what I was trying to do when I uh, I wrote the essay, and then I was invited to testify twice before a congressional panel in two thousand fourteen, like. We can't treat women like this. And I very specifically told them 10 years ago, if you continue to do this type of stuff, we will not be able to recruit men and women. There will be a link to the recruiting issue, to, to recruitment. And lo and behold, I'm right. I hate to say I told you so, but I kind of have. Well, I'll go on a limb too. And I welcome you to reel me back in if I get too far. That's fine. Mm -hmm. I suspect that because of our society and culture, American society and culture for the last, I don't know, 200 years or something, mm -hmm. we have attached a moral value to a woman's purity, which is why oh, yes. when a woman oh, goes yes. on the stand and you call her a whore, you're implying that she is lesser because she yes. engages in any sexual activity. And yes. I would bet a lot of money that that defense tactic wouldn't even be tried on a man because it wouldn't land in the subconscious with a jury. <laughs> oh, very true. Very true. So I think when you're like, where's the integrity? I think there is a twisted integrity perception that intertwines with personal beliefs on morality, yeah. in which case they're projecting a moral uh, judgment through the lens of thinking she lacks integrity in some way because she chooses her right. sexual activities, which she also, when she chooses her sexual activities, she can choose when they start, when they stop and everywhere mm -hmm. in between in frequency, quantity, quality, or anything else. Right. Right. It, and you should be able to choose. So, and the fact that we were having those conversations in 2013 was mind blowing to me because this was 20 years after Tailhook. So right. 20 years after Tailhook, we're putting female midshipmen on the stand going, do you feel like a whore? And rape is occurring at the Naval Academy. When 20 years ago, it was, hey, this type of behavior that was going on at Tailhook is not going to happen again. We're going to create a safe environment. So we're going to create a safe, and it just, it didn't happen. So, and I ask this next question, I, I in mm -hmm. no way, shape or form intend to minimize the sexual assault on any person. Right. But as somebody that's, that was in the military for 20 years and now no longer in the military, I 
feel like I have a unique perspective on the the amount of power and a, the amount of power and authority that exists in the military outside of prison categorically does not exist in the civilian sector. Mm-hmm. And for me, it is it is so terribly harmful that these sexual assaults happen in the military because there is less avenues of redress. There is more restrictions on speech. There is more commander discretion for Mm -hmm. good order and discipline and all these sorts of weird nebulous things that people with power and authority can wield to essentially disintegrate someone's career. Yes. Yeah. And a lot of people don't realize if this happens under the the authority given to a commander and they obliterate someone's career and they have a, a an adverse discharge, it precludes them from even getting medical treatment for the harms yes. inflicted by the military. And I'm not even talking compensation. I'm talking if you get a if you get a discharge. And by the way, uh, I'm going to get on a very small soapbox. I've been wanting to get on the soapbox for a while. When you abuse people, when you su- subject them to profound psychological harm by choice, mm-hmm. any behavior afterwards is not in a vacuum. Like very often you see people go to combat and they've witnessed or engaged in horrific acts that physiologically and psychologically humans cannot process at all Mm -hmm. and they come home and they are violent they are angry they uh turn to substance not everyone but they turn to substance abuse for coping which then for whatever reason the army or the air force or whatever commander somehow views those adverse behaviors in a vacuum not recognizing that those are derivative behavioral responses from the harm inflicted often callously by the military and then they punish those people for their inability to conform to unrealistic standards based on the their experiences inflicted they kick them out bad conducts or dishonorables and things like this and they literally cannot go to the va with these traumas Mm-hmm. and seek treatment. Yep. And so bringing it back, it is even more egregious the harm that the sexual assaults happen in the military. And again, I am not minimizing sexual assaults outside the, 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 the military. It's just the level of powerlessness and access to justice that military members have compared to their civilian counterparts makes what you're describing even more sorrowful it makes it just makes me just unimaginably sad that we subject the sons and daughters of america to this environment yes i i I agree with you and that's part of the reason i spent 10 years supporting senator gillibrand's language to take these types of prosecutions outside of the commander's um, ability to act a, a commander there had been too many cases where a bias was precluding prosecution a bias towards one, a bias towards something else, but these cases weren't being prosecuted. And so my argument, and I'm, I'm glad Congress listened to my argument and others, of, of pulling this outside of the commander's ability to prosecute. Uh, you know, take it away, put it into an independent hand, and and get those prosecutions started. 
So you talked about legislation that's essentially mm-hmm. pulling the essentially the the prosecutorial discretion for yes. sexual assault away from the commanders because they yes. saw so much bias. Is that happening now? Yeah, yeah. They're, they they actually that the law changed. Okay, I'm going to date myself. It was either last year or the year before. So it's changed in the past two years, and so DOD is changing processes, and the Coast Guard is also changing processes. So that that is, that is really good. But the one who has not changed is the fifth school, and the fifth school is, you know, what I had jurisdiction over, which was the Merchant Marine Academy, because the UCMJ does not attach to those students until they take commission in the Navy Reserves or an active duty. But wouldn't the UCMJ attach to the instructors or the the Mm-mm. perpetrators? No. no, it's state law. Oh. It's state or or it could be federal law, but it, it's not UCMJ. So it could be, we, legislation could be written that backs up the UCMJ to the students, or is that too complex? Oh, gosh, that's complicated. That's a can of worms. Oh, that's a law school exam. <laughs> no, I don't. Well, I mean, I'm technically still in school, but I don't choose to do exams <laughs> if I can help it. Gotcha. What else can be done or what else is, it, uh, is happening here? So what's happening is a lot of people are becoming frustrated. And so now we, you know, we talked about what happened in the nineties. We talked about what I saw in, in 2000 and, um, uh, you know, 13. And then from my vantage point, I'm seeing people incredibly frustrated. So Vanessa Guillen happens in what was formerly known as Fort Hood. And her death was shocking. And what her parents did and what her sister did to raise awareness really uh, brought greater attention to this subject than I think had happened in the, it, you know, since Paula Coughlin did it yep. in the early 90s. Then we have Hope Hicks, who just, it, it was heartbreaking really what, uh, reading what had happened to her on the merchant uh, fleets. And then let's lay earth third one on and the coast guard academy and that's all happened within the past two years and i'm seeing women talking so i'm seeing women from the first couple of classes at the academies all of a sudden saying this is unacceptable and they're sharing their stories so i i i had uh, I've been hearing about more and more sexual assaults. They're becoming more vocal because I think the earlier generations were quiet because they didn't know who to talk to or they were concerned about their careers or they, they were just, there just seemed to be an impediment for them talking. So now we have women who are 65 years old saying, I was sexually assaulted at one of these academies. And they're the first ones. And then we have you know, half a generation later, my generation of women who came in in the, I don't know, early, mid-90s saying, I was sexually assaulted. And then we have the younger ones going, I too was sexually assaulted. And so more and more people are telling, by the way, when I'm saying women, I should be saying women and men. Yep. And and so I, I think that's been the big change here is that people are using social media platforms like you and I did to start sharing the story and say, hey, we really need to talk about this. And we really need to talk about the fact that people knew about the crimes that were going on and that these crimes were never prosecuted. So how do we collectively work to put pressure on those who should have prosecuted 
to prosecute. And maybe, and this is what's probably going to happen at the Coast Guard, how do we um, hold people accountable for covering up the crimes that occurred? And that's really one of the bigger issues at the Coast Guard Academy is the cover up. Yeah, I think that's a a really good point because uh, from my, I mean, I I had a whistleblower event in my career. I was a whistleblower um, and I was very much shocked by how quickly, even though the evidence was completely black and white, very obvious, how quickly the command um, community circled the wagons and then mm-hmm. put out spears is the best way to describe it. Oh yes. And, oh, yes. and I was, sh- I was naive because I thought, I mean, I thought the values that, that are plastered all over every single building of integrity service for self and excellence. I really thought that this was a very black and white issue. And there is a person in authority that is behaving in a very problematic mm-hmm. way. And here's the evidence and, and like this, um, and instead it was, I was investigated in all these things and I suffered severe career impacts. And why is it that there doesn't seem to be a mechanism? I mean, and I feel like the mechanism at this point, I feel like the me- mechanism should be the inspector general, but clearly when you're calling the inspector general or you're sending a letter to the inspector general saying, I'm requesting investigation because of the evidence you need to get in here. And I assume that IG inspection never happened. Because you didn't finish the story with, oh, and you know, I, I, I did invest, investigation found this. Your boss called you up and essentially threatened your career and the, I, and the investigation never happened. Mm-hmm. So there is no accountability mechanism in actuality. Yeah. It, I, and you're right. I think the accountability the, mechanism is me and you yeah. amplifying and talking about and yes. like letting people that don't know. It is. Know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the then Secretary of Transportation told the IG, don't investigate. Now, I, I had grown up thinking as a lawyer, IGs investigate, and that's what they're supposed to do. And when you're given a letter that's pretty pretty bad, you know, highlighting some egregious criminal activity and you don't act, then, geez, I don't, I'm not really sure how you can call yourself an IG. Well, I, I think I don't it's know. just the str- like the IG. No matter how high up you go, the IG is always mm-hmm. going to be underneath some organization head yes. to a degree. Yes. Yeah. And, and and so the IG didn't do anything. So, yeah, we, we've got the IG. And, and by the way, I should have added, I was a political appointee. So I served at the whim of the president of the United States. Mm. All the other politicals knew what happened. Mm. Oh, yeah, isn't that yeah. interesting? So yeah. they all know, and who sticks out their neck next? Who is willing to be the next one that loses a job? Nobody. Right. And, 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 that, and I think that's really scary. People aren't going to talk because they're afraid. And that's the yeah. other, I think that's the other mechanism of retaliation I think a lot of people don't realize. And I obviously, I did a deep dive on retaliation when I was being actively retaliated against. It's amazing how how educated you get on retaliation when you're experiencing it is Mm -hmm. retaliation has the effect on the individual retaliated against, but it also has an absolute chilling effect on everyone else that's aware of it. And even if your career recovers, the Mm -hmm. lasting harm of even an attempted retaliation Mm -hmm. has a, a long-term consequence to the health of that organization. 
yes. <laughs> I'm not really sure what else I can say is, yes, retaliation is brutal. As as somebody who has been a, the beneficiary of a lot of retaliation, yeah, it's, it's brutal. So I've been having some conversations over the last few episodes, I mean, probably going on a year, where where obviously a lot of my advocacy work centers around service members and the treatment of service members. That's the, something mm-hmm. that's very near and dear to my heart because um, now that I'm out, I'm trying to use my platform and my voice to help those that don't necessarily have a voice. And a realization I kind of came to is um, with Congress, but we'll just say legislators generally, this isn't you know anything in particular. It's very hard to convince a someone with the a power or ability to change something to take action if they don't share that experience. Like when I interact with non-veteran people with the ability to do stuff, I have to unpack a whole lot of things. There's, there's a language barrier as strange as it sounds. I, you know, I'm full of acronyms. I'm full of jargon. It takes a lot to unpack. It takes a lot to explain. It takes a lot to explain the power dynamics in the military and how there should be more transparency to counteract those abuses that happen Mm -hmm. under. And I came to the realization that if there were more veteran representatives, that I would probably have better outcomes as a as a veteran because they would understand the veteran experience and they would know what matters and what doesn't matter. And I feel like it's a very logical next step to go. And this isn't to minimize sexual assaults to men because they certainly happen, but historically, and and I'm I assume the ratio is much more women uh victims of sexual assault compared to men how much does the lack of female diversity in so many leadership positions in all the branches affect or do you believe possibly affects why these things aren't acted with the sense of urgency that um i i think that's part of it but i I think, however, there's another issue at play here, and that's the members of Congress have not been connected with the victims. So if you think about these academies, the majority, not all, of the attendees who go there are nominated by a member of Congress. So I I think one way to change this is to have the victims go right back to the member and said, you nominated me to attend a school. I was sexually assaulted. I am your constituent. Are you comfortable with nominating somebody else to go to this school who might face the same crime? I think that is incredibly powerful. It it is, and it's one that I encourage people to remember to do. If you are a sexual assault survivor and you were nominated by a member of Congress, you need to go back. Because to date, I've only heard one member um, express angst, frustration, and anger. And that was Senator Manchin from West Virginia. I I can still remember attending a hearing, I think it was probably about five, six years ago, where he just got up and started reaming the DOT participants at a Senate hearing. He said, look, what the heck is going on? You're asking me to nominate people to go to your school. These people are you know, being assaulted, and you are not telling me about this. 
So he's the only one that I've seen crosswalk all of this together. Like, hey, I'm nominating this. I'm putting out, you know, things on social media. I'm putting it out on Instagram. I'm putting it out on X. I'm putting it out on Facebook. Hey, uh, uh, come to my uh, uh, service academy night. Come talk to me. Seek my appointment. Then go off, attend the school, and then go into the military. That means that they too are buying into this. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's not good. And, you know, for those that aren't familiar with this process, essentially it's, there are a limited amount of recommendations or appointments that these yes. representatives can give. So it's, mm-hmm. it's, if you really think about it, there is a, com- a competition between these high school graduates to seek out this appointment from the representative to get into these coveted positions at these academies and so it it's this bizarre flip where they are they are fighting and i can't imagine the harm that even this scenario puts on a vic- in a victim's mind they fought to they worked hard to get yes. to a place where they were raped yes that's exactly what happened that is just awful mhm and and then as a parent you see your child who's been raped and you see that the crime is crime is not prosecuted. So one of the other suggestions I have is bring the parents in. You've got to bring the parents in one, because parents always have positional power to um, encourage prosecution. Mm. You know, unlike in DC, most places have attorney generals or have attorney uh, state attorneys that are locally elected fine. Use your positional power as a parent to go to that person and say, I want a prosecution. I'll go out on one more limb. And I know there's Mm -hmm. a few more things you want to talk about. And um, my memory is not strong. And my Google foo has been weak while I've been trying to maintain both the conversation and and trying to remember the story. I I thought I remembered, I think it was Air Force, maybe a one-star general had gone TDY and there was a, a female colonel and he sexually assaulted her in a hotel room. And then she had sued him and he was claiming Ferris doctrine protection for that sexual mm-hmm. assault. Yep. Does that ring a bell? Yes, it does. Yes. Is there anything anywhere you're going to wander in that uh, mire of horribleness in this conversation about claiming Ferris for sexual assault? Okay. So Ferris applies to the four, not the fifth. So at the Merchant Marine Academy, a male soccer student who was sexually assaulted by his Stalker teammates was successful in getting a $1.4 million award from the Department of Justice because he sued the federal government. So Ferris does not apply. Ferris only applies with the military, not to the civilian. But that is the first and only lawsuit I've ever seen against the Merchant Marine Academy that was successful. So that's the first one there. As it relates to Ferris, I know that there have been conversations about knowledge because Ferris essentially says you're not supposed to be able to sue the federal government. Okay. But we've never explored the conversation about knowledge. So if you have knowledge that you have an individual who's committing sexual assault and you do nothing and that individual then commits another sexual assault, then I really don't think Ferris applies. I think it's time to have that conversation of, is this what we want to do? Is this a good application of U.S. law? 
is an appropriate application of U.S. law. And I, I think there'll be either be carve-outs that'll be created legislatively, or there'll be carve-outs that are going to be created um, from the judicial side. I, I think we're heading in that direction. And and just to frame everybody that may not be familiar, familiar with the Ferris Doctrine, essentially, and you've been doing this much longer than I've been doing this, so correct me if I get anything wrong here in my explanation of Ferris, but... Uh, the Federal Tort Claims Act, I think of the mid-1940s or early 1950s, mm-hmm. essentially gave United States citizens permission to sue the federal government for harm caused through the course of business, negligence, and so on and so forth. That really wasn't access before. There might have been some weird common law and some weird right. applications. And then there was um, there was three people across the services. There was, um, I don't remember his rank, but Ferris, the named in the case, he essentially stayed in a condemned or nearly condemned uh, sleeping uh, like a barracks or something that had no fire alarm system. It caught fire, burned to the ground, and he died. There was two other people. One, he had surgery through um, military surgery, uh, appendectomy or gallbladder Mm -hmm. or something, and they left like some 18-inch long rolled up piece of cloth in his abdomen, made him very sick, very ill. They had to go back in. I think ultimately he survived that. And then the third one was, I think, from the case law, it wasn't clear, but it was another medical malpractice. Essentially, he was injured um, through the course. And the courts essentially found that even though the Federal Tort Claims Act made no mention of military members suing for harms inflicted by the United States government, that we that there was a implied carve out that the military couldn't be functional if right. this existed and veterans are afforded uh, veteran disability compensation for these sorts of harms. And they kind of went through this long analysis, but the practical effect for those in the military is you can be placed in situations where there's asbestos raining on your head where you're, Oh, I don't know, a uh, hundred yards from a burn pit where they're burning every nature of toxic waste and everyone knows it's harmful and it, and it harms you camp Lejeune water. They're like, Take take every single presumption, mm-hmm. Agent Orange and everything, that is all essentially uh, almost implicitly endorsed by the lack of accountability because of the Ferris Doctrine, I'll say. Uh, was that a fair-ish assessment yeah, of that, Ferris? That's fair, and, and it's fair, and that's why when you see carve-outs like the burn pit legislation that is enabling people to get compensation, the Camp Lejeune, the water issue, that's also enabling. So if we're going to break Ferris... It's either carve out by law or Ferris is going to have to be overturned by the courts. And by the courts, it's going to have to be the Supreme Court. Yes. So we do carve outs. And I think recently there was almost a medical malpractice-ish carve out as yes. well. And there's some claims yep. process, but the, the numbers I looked at on that are like, none of the claims are really being granted and the money is like not uh, commensurate with the harm. Right. Could we just do a carve out for sexual assault? For Ferris, would, I think that we help, should. would that help a bunch? Yes, because I, I think those lawsuits would clean up a lot of bad activity. You know, so when we had, gosh, I can remember that hearing that Senator Gillibrand held in 2013, where you had, she had all the service chiefs and their, and their jags up there and everybody kept saying, not a problem, not a problem, everything's good. Okay. Uh, there was a problem then. There is a problem now. Nothing motivates people to change and to move things like money. <laughs> Correct. Nothing motivates faster. So I think you would see a lot more prosecutions because since Tailhook, as I shared in the CNN article, there have been very few prosecutions. 
Well, if you open this up, and there are a lot of prosecution, you know, if you open this up and people haven't prosecuted, then you get prosecuted for not prosecuting. Yep. That and, makes sense. Yeah. And in, in the civilian sector, if somebody commits sexual assault, you can absolutely, A, they're prosecuted, B, you can also sue. Yes. And that happens all the time. Yes, it does. So yes. what's special about the military where it wouldn't work? There's nothing special about this. I know there's nothing special about the military. <laughs> there's nothing special. I mean, come on. If you're looking, 136,000 MST claims were filed between 2010 and 2020. 136,000 victims. Yeah. That's crazy numbers. That, that's just, and, and that's just a 10 year um, look at the numbers. There are a lot more victims, and those are the folks who filed. What about all the folks who didn't file? Yeah, or not to be, not to make it exceptionally dark. What about all the folks that committed suicide because they were living with that trauma? And there is a strong correlation between suicide and sexual assault. Yeah. So if you've been sexually assaulted, you don't get the assistance that you need. You're going to head towards drugs. You're going to head towards alcohol. You're going to head towards a suicidal activity. And people know this. They've known it for years. Yeah, I'm a I'm a mechanic and I know it. Hey, you got a pretty smart mechanic there. I know you said you had a couple of things, more things you want to talk about. I'm I'm gonna to toss a ball to you and you can just mm -hmm. run with it. Sexual assault is a it's a hard thing to talk about. It's um it's not one that's easy, but it's one we've got to be having. And uh so I'm, I'm going to share a story about a tailhook victim that uh, came to me a couple of months ago. And she she blew me out of the water. The first thing she said was, hi, my name is X, and my victim number is Y. And it was like, you know, I, I said, thank you very much for reaching out to me. But this is a woman that's carried a pain for 32 years. And she's carried this pain and she only recently told her husband and her child. That's awful. Yeah. Now, while I say that's awful, I'm glad that she came forward and talked to me. And I hope she finds peace at some point in her life because she deserves it. But we have to give these individuals who've gone through that type of an experience the space to tell their stories, support for telling their stories, and then quite frankly, the demand that the individuals who committed the pain against these individuals, that they be held accountable. And the second part is that the individuals who covered up the lack of accountability also need to be held accountable. And, and, and that's what really has just been so frustrating to me watching the Coast Guard Academy's problems right now, because I served on active duty with the individuals that are being referenced in the CNN article. Heck, I was recruited to join the Coast Guard by one of the individuals referenced in that CNN article. That's horrible. The folks I served with on active duty knew what was going on. They didn't share the report with Congress. And they didn't prosecute the individuals who were committing sexual assault. That's why for me, it's, it's a two-part deal. It's hold the people accountable who did this. And then if you participated in the cover-up, 
guess what? It's time to hold you accountable as well. Uh, you know, in, in the CNN article, I make a recommendation to recall people and bring them on active duty and prosecute. Now, why would I do that? Well, because my father was recalled. My father was a West Pointer and he uh, retired out of the military in 1989. Well, what happens in the fall of 1990? Oops, we go to war again. Yeah. And I can still remember, it was my senior year in high school, my father gets a phone call from the Army and he, he gets told, you've been recalled. You have been recalled and you're wearing green again. So if the Army can recall my father to go fight a war, then the Coast Guard can recall an admiral who, like my father, was subject to recall because he was getting a pension. Mm -hmm. Come on back, and it's now time to start answering some questions. Yeah, they can. Oh, of course they can. Yeah. Will they? I don't know, but I think it's time we start using the recall button. You hurt a lot of people. It's time to bring you back and hold you accountable. How much do you think it's because of their position or their their upper, upper, upper echelon network? I think it's the upper, upper echelon network. So let me let me tell you something really scary about the Coast Guard, my service. There's never been a non-academy commandant. Oh, of course. Of course. <laughs> so here's what happens in the Coast Guard. The folks that you join the service with as 18 are the same ones that you then serve with for 40 plus years and one of your besties becomes commandant so what who rocks that boat who rocks it this cohort has come up and mm -hmm. they're in a club it's a club it's a club so if your club you know the members of your club are committing sexual assault you're not telling and you know what also and i'm on a limb here and i don't have any evidence mm -hmm. That commandant or whoever that whoever that had the power to like hold people accountable, mm -hmm. if they've been coming up the whole time, mm -hmm. that wasn't the first time he he heard about this guy mm -hmm. being doing these behaviors. Uh huh. Keep on asking those questions. Those are really good questions. Yep. Gary, huh? <laughs> well, uh, every so every single law school class. So. I finished my JD. Now I'm an attorney, but I went back for an LLM. And so I'm still taking some classes here and there. And every single class I take, I do another presentation on how the military is terrible. Uh, and then I come home and I, I present to my daughters about all the, all the ways the military can like create these really hazardous situations for them. So this will just be another uh, presentation. I'll have them listen to this podcast. They, now they sarcastically ask me, Dad, what would you do if I joined the Air Force? I was like, I just make you walk, go through my <laughs> presentations again because clearly you didn't sink in. Uh, but I'll go ahead and send this to him so so know exactly why uh, I say what I say. But a, you gave me a lot to think about. Again, this was one of those topics where I approached it, recognizing that because of my lived experience, I probably didn't know as much as I should have. It's just really just really terrible and i'm embarrassed and ashamed that my government that in some way represents me and my interests is inflicting this harm and and not taking the correct moral path to correct it um a lot to think about a lot to unpack i really can't thank you enough for joining me tonight and now i would ask you 
if you had a magic wand, if you were in a position of infinite authority power, whatever it would require for you to get whatever done, you can go as high as president if you want. Like, what would be the what would be the one thing that you would change policy procedure or culture wise, or maybe not culture, but through policy procedures? What would you do to maybe right the ship a little bit? Prosecute all the sexual assaults. They haven't been prosecuted. They haven't. And, and people have known that for years. I, I, I think if you have a zero tolerance policy, zero tolerance means you prosecute all the crimes. That doesn't mean that you, um, I say that means that you say, you know, you've committed the crime. We're going to prosecute you. I don't really care if you're an admiral, you're a general, or if you're an E1, you're going to be prosecuted. So it has to be a zero tolerance that you, ha you have to prosecute. And then you have to share information about the prosecutions. So that's, that's been another problem is, is the lack of information about the individuals who are prosecuted. We don't share that information. We don't tell people that they've been prosecuted. Well, tell them. And then make sure you sentence them for a long time. You know, I... I became a member of the sexual assault community because of a crime that happened 30 years ago. The individual who committed that crime 30 years ago, because a lot of people worked together, lo local law enforcement, the FBI and others worked together, that individual was prosecuted and got 20 years in jail. That individual served 20 years in jail. They served 20 years in jail because the prosecutor at the time made sure that individual was thoroughly prosecuted. So I had the opportunity of seeing a successful rape prosecution. I am an anomaly. Most rape victims do not see what I saw. They don't. Because their cases aren't prosecuted. Prosecute. That's, that's the one ask I have is just prosecute all of these cases. If that means hiring additional lawyers, you hire additional lawyers. If that means hiring additional judges, you hire additional judges. But you do what it takes to make sure these crimes are prosecuted. Well, I, I know that was the final thought, but I had one question to ask on top mm -hmm. of it. And this is from, obviously, I was enlisted for 20 years. So this is from, you know maybe a position of a little bit of ignorance about how the UCMJ and the courts and all that stuff worked while I served. But it seemed that that same club that we talked about also kind of created a weird influence for punishment as well. And like you talked about, let's prosecute and also punish. And, and what you said, mm -hmm. talked about, he was the full sentence of 20 years and that was like important. I've seen, and it very well could be cherry-picked or confirmation bias or any of the other things, uh, you, you'll see O6s caught with, like, tomes of child pornography or doing all mm -hmm. these horrible things, and they keep their retirement, and they get maybe a light sentence, and then similarly situated um, enlisted personnel get, like, a devastating and appropriate sentence. Right. So I guess how much does, and and I I've you know I've been around the block and I've seen these statements submitted on behalf for sentencing sort of consideration, but when someone is 
has an illustrious career full of accolades and accomplishments, that is often trotted out as evidence of their good character and their commitment to the country to mitigate the the sentencing to their benefit. But I would see it as if they've gone this long doing these things and they've 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 committed such an egregious harm in a position of trust and authority that those accolades actually work against them and they should be punished harder is how I would see it. Yeah, I have to agree with you. Yes. Okay. Well, because I, I think you lead from the front, you don't lead from behind. Yep. And that means that you hold everybody accountable at the same. And if you're a leader and you're doing this, then you get a little extra something out of this. You're going to be punished a little more. Yeah. Yep. Because people follow you. Yeah. Well, Denise Rucker Krep, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. Uh, fantastic podcast. And, uh, Thank you also for your work. Um, I work in my area on suicidality, and uh, I don't know how many hours I've spent doing it, but I've been doing it a lot less than you, and it already seems like a lot of hours. And I suspect hundreds, if not thousands of your hours were unpaid, as these things typically go. So thank you for your work. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for talking with me today. Well, that's it for this one. And... Adios.